Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome, Young Adventures. Dylan here. And on today's podcast, I interview Chloe Duckworth. She's a sophomore at the University of Southern California studying computational neuroscience. She's also a student entrepreneur as the co-founders of Valiant Vibrations, a sensory substitution technology translating emotions into vibrations, and Hope Hearted, a nonprofit providing COVID kits to the unhoused people in the Bay Area. So I'm very excited to talk to her in just three, two, one. Let's welcome Chloe Duckworth. Hey, Dylan. How's it going? I'm doing great. How about you? Doing awesome. awesome. Today's a good day. Today's a good day. Yeah, it's it's great to have you on. I'm I'm really excited. You you've done so much at such a young age. It's uh it's it's fun to uh to to dive in to kind of see how that all happens. Um, so you're right now at USC. How's how's that going for you? Yeah, um, I really love USC. Right now we're online, and I took a leave of absence to work full time on valence vibrations, and I'm also working for another neurotech company called BrainMind. So I've been keeping busy, but it's been nice to not have online online classes this semester. Yeah, it's a whole new way of uh, this whole post pandemic thing. It's just all of a sudden everyone just says, "Okay, online is just the way yeah. it is," and you just have to sort through it. But at the same yeah. time, you can do a lot of really neat connections, right? We can meet and connect and do things that not quite as possible before. Um, when when you're going through this, like, so you you got into you're focusing on computational neuroscience. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that is and what your interest is around it? Yeah, definitely. So computational neuroscience is bridging neuroscience, the study of the brain and computer science study of computers and how they function. And so within computational neuroscience, I specialize in sensory substitution and augmentation. So this is this idea that you can use computer systems and machines to augment, or in some cases, substitute sensory experiences. So in the case of valence vibrations, we're substituting the natural way that you're receiving emotional information from people as you're speaking into vibrations. And so as you're talking with someone without my device, you're naturally trying to perceive emotions, facial expressions, vocal tone changes, sort of complex body posturing changes as well. Um, but our device is substituting all of these senses into one discrete output. Mm. Got it. And, and then so with the device itself, so what you're talking about is you're translating like sound, it seems like, into haptic vibration. So you can get this, yeah. the translation of emotion, right? So almost taking the, um, the uh, not semantics, I guess that might be the word, of, the, of kind of the emotion of the, of the, of the way it sounds. And then that, that gets, is that, is that the main biofeedback translation point? Exactly. Exactly. So we're looking at, it's called valence actually. Um, and you're looking at basically changes in vocal pitch over time. And so each person has a different pitch baseline, but mm -hmm. as you look at their different inflections and sort of changes over time, you're able to um, understand the emotions encoded in those pitch changes. And so I'm actually wearing the wristband right now um, in the camera. This is the Neosensory Buzz. And um, Neosensory is a company that translates audio into vibrations to help deaf people. And so they've been on the market for about a year now. Um, and I connected with their CEO, David Eagleman, who suggested that I um, start developing a product or a software for their hardware. And so I entered their developer innovation challenge last summer with a friend and we've been developing ever since. 
Oh, super cool. So was that the challenge? Was that uh, like a weekend challenge? Was that over a period of multiple weeks? Or what did, What was the structured format for the challenge? Yeah, so they had, um, I think it was over the course of two months. And the first part of the challenge was just submitting ideas. And so um, I think they had something like 100 ideas submitted. And they picked five or six. Um, and we were one of those ideas. We were finalists in this challenge. And then they gave us a month, a month and a half to sort of develop a software for that. And so we spent that month um, creating a machine learning model that could detect emotions from audio data. And that was our first prototype that we've been building off of ever since. That's super cool. That's uh, that's really nice. So when you're talking about building a and is it an algorithm that detects the type of emotion, the the pitch of the emotion, and then kind of translate it? Is that what you're talking about? So, this, exactly. Um, got it. Yeah, this is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Is that? Um, do you know? Um, well, without getting too geeky, like the language that's written. <laughs> the language. This is in Python. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's amazing um, what you can do now with like. Python, artificial intelligence, and especially if you mm -hmm. find a very specific use case. Can you talk to me a little bit about any use cases or situationals where you, you feel it either adds to the sensory or replaces the sensory sensation? Like, was there specific times or stories that you can say that was, um, this was a, a moment where there was a, um, uh, an emotional exchange with that? Yeah, so our product is actually being developed for neurodivergent people. So this is autistic ADHD or another condition called alexithymia, which is where you're unable to discern your body states and emotions and those of other people. Um, and so as we've been talking with different users and autistic and ADHD people, what we're hearing a lot is that, um, you know, their neurotypical family who isn't autistic isn't communicating in a language that they can often understand, especially when it's a very emotionally charged conversation. So imagine being in a fight with your mom, but you don't actually know that your mom is angry at you because the way that she's communicating that she's angry with you is not by saying, I'm angry with you. It's by, you know, having a stern tone, making sort of an angry looking face. Um, and often the autistic child can't discern that their mother is angry. And so they miss a lot of context and the, the person ends up getting more and more angry, which leads to a worse um, communication and interaction and over time can damage relationships. And so that's what we're trying to help with this product is that once people are armed with the information of how someone is feeling, they can actually respond appropriately. That's great. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing external sensor to be able to kind of say, hey, here's are you aware of what's going on in this, mo in this moment? I, I think it'd be helpful for uh, for lots of people, especially because yeah. in the moment you have a tendency to lose yourself. So if there is a way to get your attention, um, that's great. Uh, yeah. How did you, I mean, the whole process of getting into computational neuroscience, like what, what got you into the field and, you know, what, mm -hmm. you know, what, what, are, your, what are your real, like, um, I know you talked a bit about your passions, but what got you into the passions and where do you see that going? Yeah. So, um, throughout high school, I was really interested in science. I took a couple of um, neuroscience classes, sometimes on the weekends, sometimes over the summer. Um, I actually met David Eagleman, the CEO of Neosensory, at a summer program. Um, he was giving a lecture on sensory substitution. 
And um, I was just amazed. I didn't have a lot of exposure to computational neuroscience and really what that meant. And um, he actually demoed at that time, it was the vest that they were using. So it was a haptic vest that could convey sound information as vibrations. And um, I was like, so enthralled with the prospect of being able to help people like create new senses that was just unimaginable to me and so um, ever since that talk I actually started diving deeper into neuroscience and computational neuroscience specifically I did some research in high school um, I did like a meta-analysis of MDMA assisted psychotherapy to treat PTSD and that was super interesting. So I had a couple of different experiences that really got me excited about the power of the mind to alleviate human suffering. Um, I also have been very involved in community service throughout my life. And so having the, this ability to see how neuroscience can bridge with social impact to you know, help the greater good has been really amazing to me. And that is really what inspired me to study that in school. And I think that going forward, I want to work in a lot of different facets within neurotechnology, but the one overarching theme is that I want to be able to advance accessible neurotechnology to alleviate suffering and sort of unite people. Because I think that technology often has this ability to either stratify people with um, you know, making certain things accessible to only certain types of people, but it also has this ability to unite people. And I don't think enough people are in that space right now. So that's where I want to be. Love it. Yeah. The um, technology can, it's, they say it's a race between utopia and disaster. And what you're saying is that a lot of times it divides us social media that makes us ironically more lonely while, yeah. you know, there's, there's things that we can do like virtual reality. There's places where you can come together in a shared space and actually feel a more witching sense of connection um, than you would in, in any other ways. So that's, that's amazing. Um, besides the specific one with you with, uh, with what you're working on, is there any other types of um, areas with uh, computational neurosciences where you see the brain, the mind melding together in one? And what, what about those excites you? Yeah, so I'm really excited about brain-computer interfaces. Um, I'm working for a nonprofit right now called BrainMind, which is basically trying to accelerate high-impact neuroscience technology that doesn't meet the traditional criteria for VC funding. And um, we've been talking with a lot of brain-computer interface companies that are basically building either invasive implants like Neuralink or non-invasive wearables um, like an EEG headset, for example. And that's been a really exciting sort of uh, project for me. I'm writing a report right now on that. And I think it's in a really amazing space. And there's a lot that different BCI modalities can do for, for our future. Uh, would you get the Elon Musk uh, neural link in your brain if that was an option? If he came out tomorrow, like, at, would you, is that something you would sign up for? Or what, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely something that needs to be thoroughly tested. Um, Right now it's in animal models and it hasn't been tested in humans, so I wouldn't get the implant until, you know, obviously the due diligence has been done. And I think their initial use case is more for the disabled population. I think they're working with people with spinal cord injuries first. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I would wait until um, it's been tested more. But I think it's a really, really cool technology, and I think it's very powerful when used correctly. Yeah, 100%. It's one of those ones. It's 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 so, it's so amazing, but it's like I, I don't necessarily want to be the first one to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The question is, at what at what superpower do you need to get to be able to like I'll risk it 
Like, what is it? Is it, yeah. is it? is it like, you know, learn Kung Fu in three seconds? Is that the thing? <laughs> you could just download French. Is that, would that be the thing that would say, okay, I'll put it in my brain. It's always one of those ones because it gets, it depends on how powerful the technology is. Think of what the cell phone can do right now with, you yeah. know, for good and ill. It's, 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 just, it's just really fun to, to think about and, uh, and see. So, um, so with that, like one thing that I, I often look at is, you know, being both the player in the game of life and the dungeon master, um, how in the way, how in the way of with the neuroscience and looking at the uh, brain like a computer and also possibly like a game, do you see any people setting up neuroscience like a game? I know there's things like flow and other things like that, but do you see any people making these these kind of game like models um, around neuroscience? Yeah, I have seen that a bit. Um, I think particularly in the wellness space, mm -hmm. there are a lot of um, like meditation and mindfulness apps, things um, trying to help you with sleep, things with anxiety, etc. And some of them are formatted more, um, they're more gamified than mm -hmm. the traditional therapy model. There's like rewards for, you know, uh, using the app more, things like that to sort of incentivize you using it further. I think in the traditional game model where you're literally like, in gameplay, working on your mental health. I haven't seen that, um, but I'm sure someone will try to do that soon. <laughs> yeah, no, the people are making games all over the place. I was just, I was curious just to to learn how they all bridge together. Have you? Because I'm definitely very big into the the VR space. Have you have you played VR? Is that is that a world that you've been a part, or are you mostly in the biofeedback neuroscience space? Yeah, I'm more on the biofeedback side. Um, I have you know, connected with some VR folks. It's really interesting. Um, and I think especially during the pandemic, I've seen some really interesting use cases for that. Um, I forgot the name of the company, but there are a couple people working on virtual concerts where um, you literally like take the blue pill in the concert as if you were actually there. Um, yeah. And it, it's like, a really crazy room it looks like a rave um so that's really cool i haven't done that myself i played i think one vr game and it was related to exorcism and it was very terrifying um and i was i was really scared like when i came out of the vr experience i was still scared and my dad was there with me and i was like oh gosh but um Sorry yeah really cool. yeah a little traumatizing. Welcome to the world yeah. of VR. You could be anything. How about an exorcism? Ah! I, don't, I don't know why that was what I picked, but I love horror movies, so I thought it would be yeah. very similar. But Ooh, you feel yeah. more like embodied with the game. So getting scared in in VR is one of the easiest things to do to people because yeah. it's, so, it's just it's just like you can't even put your hands over your face. So it's it's not fair per se. Um, mm -hmm. you, can, you can also do a lot of really cool things with sound. Um, back in the day, I took a the haptics vibration chest and I took a transducer for a chair and we made a virtuality electric chair that shocks you in real life. So the the vest simulated the heartbeat and then the chair underneath vibrated when you got electrified. So um but again it's it's fun. It's fun to do. Yeah. Uh uh it's usually fun to watch your friends go through it. Um <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry you went through that one. But uh looking at like but just shifting gears knowing that it's it's not necessarily as much you spend time in there. Can you lay to me out a path of like a computational neuroscience? Like where does someone go with that? How do they apply it? Where do you, where do you see that progression on like a mastery path for neuroscientists? Is it like, I thought it was cool. I saw this amazing guy, um, you know, speaking and 
and that inspired me on the path of, but I'm, I'm just kind of saying like, cause I don't know too much about it. I'd love to learn. Like, what do you see that as a, as a mastery path for that? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it sounds like such a niche field when you say computational neuroscience, but really it's an incredibly broad and powerful field. There are so many different things you can do with it. So computational neuroscience is also just using computational methods to do neuroscience research. So running machine learning on um, brain tumors and trying to better detect brain tumors in different scans. That's computational neuroscience. Using statistical methods to analyze your data is also to some extent computational neuroscience. Also, computational neuroscience is creating a brain implant that you implant in a bunch of people to um, help them with neuroprosthetics, for example. So I think there are so many different really interesting applications that I it's really hard to actually narrow down one. Um, I think as a field, we're seeing sort of a shift where people are developing a lot of brain-computer interfaces for um, treating different conditions, for being able to get higher quality data to create better pipelines for diagnostics, but also having higher quality data to actually use in research purposes. And so I think that the near-term application of different brain-computer interfaces will be for research. And as we're aggregating you know, an unprecedented amount of brain data that will lead to a lot of breakthroughs, which I think are really exciting. Um, and, you know, the brain has been a really hard organ to study and it's delayed in its progression compared to other organs because you can't invasively view it or, or do like exploratory surgery like you can in, in other regions. So it's much harder to get high quality data without a lot of noise because you're, you're relying on very crude neuroimaging techniques. And so I think brain-computer interfaces are offering an amazing, unprecedented opportunity to gain really important data that we haven't had before. So I think that a lot of the applications will sort of direct towards that path. Got it. So then reflecting back, uh, a lot of this is computational AI science uh, to, to be able to, to study the, the brains and the functions of the brain. Mm -hmm. And and so, I mean, you can go in any which direction because yes, uh, and it's somewhat uh, a taboo to, to do uh, open experiments poking around a, a human brain just to see what happens. So yeah. I, I, I can see the limiting growth that you have um, in that in that in that space. Uh, with that, one area that I've always find fascinating in terms of the brain is flow. Um, so Mihai, Michex Mihai, and the whole you could get into the flow zone where I think the acronym STIR. Like it's timeless, selfless, all that. Um, what What are your thoughts around flow? What are your thoughts around neuroscience and flow? Is it measurable? Um, um, do you have any experience with it? I'd love to get your your feedback. Yeah, I actually don't have a lot of experience with flow personally. Um, I don't have like a regular meditation practice. A lot of the people around me do have it, and I think that it's something that everyone's really recommending. So it's it's really on my list to to try out basically. Um, you know, there are starting to be more like research studies published around meditation and mindfulness. I think they're trying to elucidate exactly which brain states you can measure as flow, so to speak. I think it's pretty easy when you're looking at um, sleep patterns and things like that. But for, um, you know, everyday activity and, and measuring how mindful someone can be in a given moment, that's 
a bit tough right now. I think we will get there. And I think there are a lot of people working on that problem. But um, I haven't seen anything exactly measuring, okay, what is your level of flow right now? Sure, sure. That, yeah, that's curious. I know it's a hard thing. It's it's a hard thing to measure. It's very elusive in terms of like, oh, I'm yeah. in it. And when you think you're in it, you drop right out of it. So yeah. it's, it's, like, it's like being in the dream. Uh, but it's also super beneficial for all the things you can do. It's, and it's just this weird, like, it's like the game of being a human. You find an activity that's hard, but not super hard. And you stay in that resistance period. And then you like shut down a piece of yourself and you get into the flow because you have to high risk, mm-hmm. high reward thing. But you gotta, you gotta like surf that wave. And it's, and it's very, it's very, you know, it's like what makes funny, right? It's like what makes flow. It's not, it's very, um, yeah. you know, we, we, got a, we got a gist of it, but we don't really fully, fully understand it. So that's why I was, I was curious about it. Um, yeah. What do you have in, in terms of um, with um, Valiance um, and, and the, the company, are you, do you have an ultimate vision with it? Are you looking to blend it together? with other technologies or what do you what do you see as the pathway for uh, your company? Yeah, so right now we've started with the Neosensory Buzz is our only hardware that we're like supporting as a software. We're working to expand to other hardware devices so that more people can download an app and translate sound into, or like the emotions and in sound into vibrations. Um, right now, we are currently about to begin testing on 20 neurodivergent people at the end of this month, and then we're planning a 100-person trial over the summer in conjunction with the USC lab. Um, and then after those two studies, we're working to sort of iterate, add a couple new features, and then go to market next year, hopefully. Um, and I think that it's a really cool product because we're not only creating models that will help people in the near term understand those around them better, but we're also creating emotional models that can be used for many different applications. So imagine a Zoom plugin that would transcribe not only the semantic meaning of language, but also the emotional content of that conversation. And there are a couple of companies also working in this space that are working on things like that. But you know, we're creating really high accuracy emotional models that can be used in so many different applications. Um, so I'm really excited about that future. Yeah, that'd be incredible. I mean, even for people, again, it's the part of like social emotional regulations, mindfulness, whatever, whatever you want to call it, the first step is emotional awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, you can't regulate or modulate or avoid or any of those other things. You can't take an action unless you become aware. So I could definitely see that as, a, as an amazing use case if no matter where you're at, if you start to get alerts on your wrist that, hey, pay attention. <laughs> you, might, yeah. you, might, you might want to start asking some questions or something. Um, okay. I, think, I, think, I think it's great and super useful. Um, is there anything about the field that scares you? Is there anything about the field that you're like, oh, no, like I, I love all of this, but there's like Terminator-esque vibe you get uh, down yeah. the line? Yeah, what's what's that? So I think, I think privacy is number one concern, consumer privacy. So, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with really sensitive data, and we have been cognizant of that from day one. You know, people are essentially having audio data um, analyzed by our algorithm and then the emotions extracted from them. And so we are actually not storing that data ourselves in the cloud. We don't have access to what someone's saying on a daily basis. It's all being processed on their, their phone. Um, but there are 
are certain issues with the sort of data that we are analyzing, you know, the emotions of neurodivergent populations, which are in a vulnerable class online, um, because neurotypes have been and will continue to be exploited on things like Facebook and Instagram. And oftentimes, vulnerable populations are the ones that are targeted by advertisement campaigns that are trying to influence the way that we're voting or what we're buying and things like that. So we're being very cognizant of the privacy and the security of the data that we're collecting and making sure that we are um, thoroughly encrypting it so there's no issues with consumer privacy. And I think that in the field, there isn't enough of an industry standard to put the consumer's privacy as number one priority where it should be. Um, especially when you're working with populations that have been historically discriminated against in advertising campaigns online. Mm, yeah. Privacy, recording people's audio. It's really strange. Like um, you can record video, like video, and it's totally fine. But if you're recording people's audio, so I just put this thing right here, it gets very weird. Yeah. Um, and so, and just there's something about that. It's like, I don't care how you, I don't, I don't care if you see me, but if you hear mm -hmm. me, it gets, it's very personal and yeah. and you're right that the having access to that kind of data especially with how hungry people are for data could make a lot of a lot of challenges online at the same time it's it's it empowers them if it if it gives them insights to to who they are like your cell phone it does yeah. so many amazing things but it also knows where you are all the time and so it's one of those it's one of those trade-offs for that um do you have like a is there like a code of ethics you have, or is there anything that you have in terms of, um, you know, like Google used to have do no evil or any of that stuff, but is there any way that you kind of insulated your company with a culture um, so that you don't um, uh, go deep into the privacy end? Yeah, so there's this concept of surveillance versus surveillance. So surveillance is an oppressive third party that's sort of stealing your data and using it for their purposes, like a government, for example, that's trying to track locational data or geolocations from all of its citizens. That's surveillance. Um, surveillance is a person opting in to having certain types of data collected so that it can improve their own experience with a particular product. And so that's what we're doing. Um, the information that we're using will not be used to benefit some greater surveillance system, but it will only be used to benefit the end user, not an advertiser, not a government, anything like that. And so um, I think that's of number one importance to us. And that's the framework that we've been using. Good. It's awesome that you're tackling it head on. It's it's, it's beautiful. And it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those hard questions that Whenever stepping into a new technology, a new space, a new anything, there's always like responsibilities. I know in virtual reality, you have a lot of responsibilities, like don't scare the crud out of people when they first put it on. You know, those are the type yeah. of things you have. You have a um, responsibility as the caretaker to someone's experience to care after them. Um, so that's that's beautiful that you're that you're doing that. Um, how does is there any crossover with that and and hope hearted or is that something that you do just because you give back and that's it or is there any type of any way that you see that this cutting edge technology is going to tie in with the hope hearted uh, mission so hope hearted is not a technology nonprofit in any sense of the word yeah. technology um i think that the missions are very similar though in that we are providing a service or a product um in 
whole party's case, it's a kit. In Valence's case, it's a software that will make something more accessible to people that didn't traditionally have that or have that accessible. And so in um, Valence's case, the neurodivergent community is being forced to undertake a lot of um, really harmful behavioral interventions that are causing PTSD. But um, clinicians and, and parents are still, you know, promoting these different behavioral interventions because it makes the parents' life easier to not have to deal with what they think are annoying behaviors. And so um, in sort of the same vein, the unhoused community doesn't have access to COVID supplies that they need to keep themselves safe from this pandemic. And I think, um, you know, I had started to recognize this years before the pandemic actually happened. I started a hospital volunteer program at a struggling hospital nearby where I live. And um, I noticed that the unhoused patients really didn't have the support that they needed. They were often having to leave the hospital in their gowns because their clothes were so dirty. It was actually a health hazard. And they often didn't have the um, like female sanitary supply products to support, you know, being a menstruating woman. And so we created a clothes closet, a period project to try to help, um, you know, support our unhoused patients in that community. And often they would come in again and again and again because it's really hard to recover from an illness like walking pneumonia, for example, when you don't have a home to go home to. And so sort of to the same vein, we're providing something that hasn't been made accessible in this way to that community before. And I think it's really important in the assistive technology space, in the social impact and like nonprofit space to truly consider the pain points of the people you're trying to support from their perspective and not yours. And I call this decentering yourself. I think it's really important when you're speaking with someone and you're trying to help up uplift them with your activism, with your um, nonprofit support, anything like that, that you need to consider their life experiences and not your biases about their life experiences. And I think this is where a lot of nonprofits go wrong because they can't step outside of their context to truly consider the life of someone else. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's really hard to remove your own implicit biases because yeah. you're wearing you're permanently wearing these glasses, and you're like, no, the world's red. And you're like, no, you're wearing red glasses. You're like, no, the world's red. And so it's very hard. How would you suggest somebody be able to separate them and their own biases? What do you have any strategies, tactics, invites, or guidance on how yeah. if people are doing that? They're, how do they become aware and take action? Yeah. So I think. A really great example to illustrate what I'm saying is um, oftentimes when you see an unhoused person on the street and you walk by them, I hear people say, I don't want to give them money because they're just going to buy alcohol or insert something else that you think they shouldn't be buying. And the reason that you think that is because with your life experiences, if you were suddenly placed on the street without a home, you think that you would want to spend your money on food or things that you deem as more important. But what you're failing to consider is that if you had started from day one when they were a baby and you were a baby in their shoes and not yours, then all of the life experiences that would have led up to that would put you in a very different situation. And so this is also a really silly um, thing to say because you know our society uses alcohol and drugs to cope with 
a lot of evils. I think there's a really high rate of alcoholism in doctors and lawyers and people with really professional jobs. So it's very judgmental to say something like that. But I think that what's important is when you're trying to truly consider the context of someone else, you start at the beginning. You don't just say, in this situation, I would act differently, but you consider what it would have been like if you started in their life at day one with you know, in that case, maybe a horrible support system. Maybe that woman had to run away at 17 because she was being abused and then she ended up being trafficked on the streets. And so now she has a substance abuse disorder because of those years of trauma being compiled onto each other. I think that people don't consider enough the impact of trauma on the way that you live your life. And if you haven't gone through trauma, it's really hard to understand how that can lead to substance abuse disorders, to other mental health disorders, and how that can adversely impact your life. And so I really recommend people to start at the beginning and truly consider like what it would have been like if you had lived their entire life, not just that exact moment of their life. Mm. So then it's a lot of it's, it's so when you look at the person, try to imagine and or talk to them about what was it like mm -hmm. for their day one, all the way, through, like their journey that led them up to that spot. And then you'll yeah. have more empathy, understanding, and and just insights. And the more you understand them, the less you're going to just kind of assume and just kind of do the, the, the lazy version where you're like, I know you. I don't even, just by looking at you, I know everything about you, right? So yeah, Exactly. Yeah. That's great. That's, that's really insightful. They, um, I'm noticing a lot of brain themes here. Uh, <laughs> no, I, um, looking at this, looking at, okay, look at that. I see how they kind of tie together, which is fascinating. Tying uh, what, to the third leg of the stool or something I want to talk about is, is brain mind. Um, so uh, from what I see, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eco ecosystem of top scientists, entrepreneurs, that pamp that they're amplifiers. Oh, I can't say the words. Ah, impact investors, venture capitalists, and neuroscientists. So um, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, brain mind and, and how's it all, how does that relate to your own ecosystem? Yeah. So I started interning with Brain Minds, um, I think, at the sort of beginning of the pandemic last year. And it's been around for a couple of years now. It's a nonprofit that was started by Michael McCullough, who was the founder of QuestBridge and a lot of other for-profit and nonprofit companies, and um, Calvin Nguyen and Diana Seville. And they've become sort of my mentors throughout this process, and I really respect them. Um, they created this wonderful ecosystem of sort of the, the top authorities within neuroscience. There's investors, philanthropists, academics, entrepreneurs, um, and a lot of other various stakeholders. And so what they're trying to do is that they've identified that a lot of the really high impact science that could benefit humanity is not reaching people because it doesn't fit the traditional VC model. And so we call this the valley of death of neuroscience. And um, basically, you know, high impact science isn't reaching people because it's not getting funded early enough. A great example is brain computer interface technologies. Because it's such a novel technology, they can't have a really high initial ROI because they need years and years to research and really test these things in trials, which doesn't naturally fit the VC model very well. And so we're trying to gather together all these different stakeholders, some uh, seeking funding for their projects, some with the capital to deploy in these really high impact projects to really curate an ecosystem of people working to advance the state of neuroscience today. And it's been really exciting to 
get to meet a lot of these people, hear what they're working on, hear how, you know, infusions of capital could really help their their project or their company in many cases succeed. And I think being able to create these partnerships between stakeholders has been really amazing. Mm, that's really interesting. So it's like, this is deep science. This is this is impactful science. This is also a long game kind of thing. And we're not a pharmaceutical company that can that can basically front load all the costs here uh, and be able to embrace it. So basically gathered everybody, a, a cohort of people, uh, an association that are all into neuroscience um, and BCI technologies and really kind of create a space of, hey, look, there's the best ideas will float to the top. The people mm-hmm. that are part of the funding circle will see those best ideas. And then we'll be able to kind of all collectively put eyeballs and support each of the top champions through these very long journey of neuroscience, which is actually going from where it's kind of like the right now, 1990s of websites going, yeah, but websites are really, really valuable. Just give them a couple of years mm-hmm. and you're, you're funding that. And so this allows them to show the science and to fund the science and, and, and to really yeah. kind of be able to give it an, an, um, enough nurture nurture it enough to be able to kind of grow it. Um, that's great. What, Inside there, do you see yourself advancing? Because right now you're um, writing articles inside there and, and contributing. Mm-hmm. Do you see what do you see your pathway? Is it top scientist? Is it for <laughs> starting DC back going through that? What does that? What does your path look like going through this um, yeah. brain mind community? Yeah, I mean, I hope to you know stay involved within the brain mind ecosystem. Um, right now, I'm managing the team of interns within brain mind, and I will continue to do that until the end of this summer. I'm going to stay involved with a lot of their initiatives, which are sort of longer term projects that I'm really passionate about, um, and stay involved in the organization. I don't know exactly what that title looks like, but um, you know, as a young female founder of a neurotech company, I, I hope to stay involved with their ecosystem of people. They've introduced me to so many different mentors and advisors and people that have been guiding me along the process of starting a company and nonprofit, actually. Um, and I'm really grateful for that opportunity. That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about the um, Alzheimer Prevention uh, Masterclass and if that has anything to do with the heart flow technology? Yeah, so they're actually two two different things. Okay, yeah, the Alzheimer's Masterclass was a really cool project. I actually helped edit the video series. We worked with a doctor named um, Dr. Richard Isaacson, and he essentially helped us create a class about how to prevent developing Alzheimer's and other dementias by um, doing certain brain healthy activities, um, following a certain diet, etc. And so that was a really fun project because a lot of the science is ever evolving and hasn't really been disseminated to the public in a consumable way quite yet. It's it's often getting stuck in these academic journals that are really hard to read and people don't really know what they mean and it doesn't reach the people that need to read them. And so it was really cool to create this series basically telling you how to live your life um, to help prevent Alzheimer's as best you can. That's awesome. What uh, could do you have like a two minute cliff notes on what to do to prevent Alzheimer's? Is there a uh, <laughs> diet and exercise and broad stroking? Um, just like I'm sure we can go and check out the and, and link it in the bio if we need to. But do you just for the, the sake of sheer interest, what what do you do to as broad strokes to present prevent Alzheimer's? 
Yeah, I'm going to recommend everyone watch it, actually, um, because I think it's really hard to condense all the awesome information there. How um, do we find it? How do we find it? Um, it mm -hmm. should be on the Brain Mind site, but I can provide you a link okay. afterwards. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll get that. Brain Mind site. Okay, cool. Yeah, and that's always great, because when someone here is like, hey, all your all your answers is in that bucket. Okay, well, let's move on. <laughs> like, wait, no, no, wait, hold on a second. How do we, let's get that information out of the bucket and see what we do. But yeah, we can link it up there, Brain Mind site. Um, and then um, we'll, we'll find it later. But okay, great. I was just curious as well. Um, is there anything that you do in terms of brain health? Uh, do you have healthy routines now that you're in the space? Do you take 600 and, you know, pills a day uh, for your brain <laughs> yeah. health? What, what is it that you do um, every day or every week as rituals um, to, to, to keep your own brain healthy? Yeah, I think um, a lot of it is pretty obvious. The most interesting thing that I learned from that video series was actually about um, high intensity interval training and how that's the most brain healthy way to exercise. Um, and so I started implementing that into my daily routine and it's pretty easy to implement actually. It's not um, a super intense workout for a really long time. It's basically training in like 20 minute intervals of really high intensity exercise. And um, the series that I use is like 40 seconds per exercise and then 20 second rest. So it's very, very doable. There's a lot of like beginner videos if you're not super into exercising in these timed video things. Um, but I think that's been a really great addition to my life. That's awesome. Yeah, so much about uh, uh, use it or lose it with humans, like with your brain and everything, you gotta struggle. It's like, oh, you want to sit in a in a warm vat of comfort? Great, you're gonna shrink. But you like there's something even with your brain, you need to struggle. There is something about the the like I'm <laughs> I'm not comfortable with this at all, which is your body's like, good job, way to way to yeah. keep that up. Um, do you have any thoughts on like autonomic nervous system, the vagus nerve, uh, sympathetic parasympathetic nervous systems, or are any of those things you look at and study? And uh, do you have any thoughts on those? Yeah, you just named a lot of things there that are very different, but um, there are some interesting vagus nerve stimulators that are working on things like depression. Um, some of them are invasive implants, but there's some interesting ones that are popping up that are like ear clips or um, different like wands that you can rub right underneath your ear. So I think that's, that's sort of an interesting application of brain-computer interface technology. Um, what else did you name? The sympathetic nervous system versus parasympathetic. Um, mm -hmm. I don't have like a technology to recommend, but I think there's a lot of really interesting research there. Yeah, I just threw the, you know, when, you, when you're looking at like emotional states and controlling emotional awareness and, and all that stuff, like your flight or flight, fight or flight systems will kick in, right? And you've got to find a way to be able to regulate those systems. High level mm -hmm. training is one way to stimulate that. There's other various emotions and things like that. And so <clears throat> I've had some people in the podcast that they've built like applications, like in VR applications, things like that to help to regulate that. Oh. Um, and to me, I'm always very interested in people that are, yeah. you know, you're, you're in that space and you're talking about a lot of emotional, so emotional, you have a lot of uh, audio translations to the hands to know, cause that would translate into emotional regulations like Wim Hof breathing and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, so just always seeing, I, I really didn't know about any, um, like wands or ear clips. I haven't actually haven't checked, taken a look at any of that stuff, but uh, is there, 
where do people go to find out the science on this type of stuff? Do they want to get in deep into this? Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you want to go deep into it, I always use like Google Scholar or PubMed. Um, there's a lot of like open source science there. Oftentimes it's in academic jargon, but if you sort of read the articles very closely and use a lot of like Googling of what does this term mean, I think it's approachable to most educated people. Um, and I think there are a lot of sites that do a pretty good job, like Median, for example, of um, scientists going on there and sort of communicating their ideas in a more accessible way. And so I think that Medium and Wired articles have, have done a lot to help communicate science to the public in a way that they can understand. And I've really enjoyed um, reading different articles in, in fields that I'm not in. Got it. It's, it, part of me is like, I'm very interested in stuff, but I also wish somebody would read it to me or show me big pictures. So that's yeah. what I believe. I'm like, uh, is it in an audiobook format? Can I get it? Can you can you show me some stick figures? <laughs> and complex thing. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing all the, the data is out there. Just trying to find out like, oh yeah, there's communities that they can, is there, is, is the brain mind like one of the bigger communities for something like this? Is that, is that? Yeah. I would say we're the biggest community within neuroscience. Um, and, you know, this is a problem that we're actively tackling is that communication of science is not done enough and it's not done to the quality that the public deserves. And so we've been working on different like science communication projects to um, explain different concepts to the public in a way that they can use and integrate in their daily life. So that's what this video series was on brain health. Um, we've created some scientific animations for different um, neuroscience concepts, things like that. What about, um, so you mentioned something interesting. So, hey, all the information is out there. Google it. Go Google it and read closely and your information is there. That is one barrier to entry for really getting up into this. Um, mm -hmm. As you, you know, have gone to college for this and female-led founder of the company and just stepping into the spaces, what other threshold guardians have you faced as you've been building out this wellness product and really just advancing yourself in the tech society? So I'd love to I'd love to learn some about your yeah. uh, threshold guardians that you face. I think um, one of the big barriers that we're facing with valence is a fundamental, like people don't have a great understanding or appreciation for neurodiversity. And so, so much of the conversation in the United States especially is, you know, autism is a disease, it needs to be treated or cured, it's tragic, um, autistic people are either like severely low functioning, which I don't use functioning labels, but that's a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing, or they're geniuses. And this is sort of um, promulgated by the way that the media is portraying autistic people. And it's really problematic because it influences the way that parents are treating their autistic children and thus, you know, allowing behavioral therapists to spend 40 hours a week trying to use operant conditioning to train their autistic people to be less autistic, essentially. And so I think that's been a, a really big um, barrier in what we're trying to do because we're creating a pro-neurodiversity product with this thesis that you don't need to change autistic people. They don't need to be cured. They don't need to be treated. They need to be supported. 
And what we're doing is making a certain type of information that's harder for them to process, um, simpler to process, essentially. And um, because so many people don't believe that that's the right trajectory for how to handle autistic people, I think that's been a pretty big barrier in terms of um, gaining trust in the community because there have been so many different harmful interventions that have been forced on autistic people throughout the years. And there's been so much trauma there that it's really hard to convey to people that, you know, we're not like them. We, we support you, we uplift you, and we're not trying to change you to make you less of who you are. We think diversity is beautiful and it needs to be empowered and uplifted. Awesome. So instead of saying you're broken and you need to be fixed, you're like, Hey, let me, let me supplement what you can do so that mm-hmm. you're basically, you have all the data you need to be able to make decisions, right? And that's- Exactly. Social data exactly. or that, so. Yeah, this is, this is called the social model of disability. And it's this idea that you are not disabled because there is something intrinsically wrong with you um, and that you are worse than any other person who isn't disabled. It's that our society is not designed to meet your support needs. And so for autistic people, this often means that there are a lot of like bright flashing lights in different rooms that are that can be triggering. Um, and there are a lot of other sensory triggers that other people don't accommodate for because they're not designing buildings and, and sort of larger structures to accommodate variations in neurotype. But that's not the autistic person's fault. That's the people around them's fault. Uh, so then, yeah, so how do you how do you balance out the environmentals to be able to kind of support them? I know, for example, like, you know, light-wise, I mean, you have these glasses here that that mitigate lights because we're not we're not meant to have all these, you know, blue hues during the evening times and things like that. So um, besides the technology that you're, you're talking about, the translational technology, do you see other types of enabling technologies that help um, supplement um, instead of try to repair? Yeah. Um, yeah. So a big one is sensory toys. And I know a lot of parents have designed like sensory rooms. Um, Schools also have these if they're um, tailoring to autistic children where um, it can enable people who are like sensory seeking and sensory overloaded. So so people that experience sensation too um, intensely in a given moment or people that are seeking sensation themselves they can separate them in different types of sensory rooms. So for a sensory seeker, this room could have a lot of um, really cool textures that they can play in. It could have a sand pit, for example, or um, different, they're called stim toys. And um, they enable you to like, it's like a fidget spinner or chewable jewelry, things like that. Um, And then for people who are overloaded, it's more of a quiet, calm environment that enables them to just center themselves and not have to deal with really loud sounds of like a screaming child or really bright lights um, in a traditional classroom. Got it. Yeah. So you can kind of like down, like um, turn up or down the volume on that sensory Mm -hmm. environmentals and and be able to say more or less stimuli so that you can kind of find that right balance versus like, I'm overwhelmed or I'm understimulated. That's super cool. Uh, do you do you have any advice for people that want to get into this field? Like, if there was a a, a younger high school version of yourself that wants to <laughs> get up and into this whole space, and then what advice would you would you give to her um, coming up um, to, yeah. to really you know make the most of her time? 
I mean, I think in any social impact space, um, especially in biotechnology, the most important thing that you need to do is listen to the people that you're trying to support. Um, I could very easily go into the space and say, you know, as a non-autistic person, I know better than them, and this is exactly how I need to fix their problems. They need to be cured. I'm going to genetically modify them. I could say a lot of things like that. Um, and, you know, a person that was uneducated on that community might think that that's perfectly fine. You know, there's science behind all of those things. But when you listen to the person and you actually understand and decenter yourself, as I've said, you have this whole new understanding of how you can impact someone's life and you're not going to do a lot of the problematic things that other people are doing. Um, another great example of this, it's called volunteerism. So it's where um, people try to go to other countries to build a church or um, do some other like very temporary service project because they want to have the experience of saying they went to Africa, they want to take pictures with the African children and say, you know, I really helped someone. But oftentimes these projects um, backfire because they're not doing something that the community actually needs them to do. So they're just going there, exerting their external influence on a community, and oftentimes they're harming the community. A great example is Tom Shoes, who is donating um, shoes to other countries, and they actually took out all of the um, shoemakers in the process of all of these communities. So now they lost their job and they, they harmed the communities that were, um, you know, relying on that shoemaker to make an income for a larger family, things like that. So you really have to listen to the people that you're trying to help and not try to think that you know better than them just because you're in a space that they're not. Um, you know, listening is really important and I wish people would find a way to embody the signals that other people are giving them and I hope that my product can help with that so that we can build a collective empathy and make this a lot easier. That's that's beautiful. What advice would you give to people uh, to be able to get into that listening mindset uh, whether they're working with um, autistic people or not? How do you how do you broach the subjects that might be difficult? How do you dive in if you if you're not if you're hearing something that doesn't seem like it's accurate and you feel like that that's not in hundred percent, whether intentional or unintentional. How do you how do you how do you how do you deepen those listening skills? I think you need to do a lot to build trust, and the way that you do this is by showing your intentions. I think um, when Shannon, my co-founder, and I were going into a lot of interviews, we didn't know a lot when we first started out, and we learned, and that's how we improved, and now have the perspectives that we have now. Um, but we came in as very humble listeners ready to absorb information rather than communicate information and we did a lot more listening than speaking um, and we asked you know important questions to be able to extract the information that we wanted but we didn't ask questions that we already knew the answers to because in this case you're actually not supposed to you should be asking questions that you don't know the answers to to learn something um, rather than just validate your own preconceived notions of what their answer should be and I think that this is super important um, to develop as, you know, a young person. So I started doing service when I was probably about five years old. My parents um, brought me to a food bank and, and helped or had me help the people supported by that food bank. And I think that building that, that gene or that reflex for empathy very early on can be 
very um, instrumental in shaping a career in impact because you truly understand it from a young age. And I, I really recommend that people start as soon as they can um, volunteering and doing community service. That's awesome. Because <clears throat> I just pictured a parent dropping off a kid at a soup kitchen and is like five years old. He's like, you've got it, man, the station. <laughs> and it's a little, <laughs> little, little baby with a chef's hat on. Uh, I know maybe not the, not the best, not yeah. your initial intention, but the, the thought you're right is if you can make an impact on that kid's life where they feel the, the, the joy of contribution at a young age, you kind of, you know, inception that, that, that empathy seed inside them so, so that it can grow into a, uh, grow into something that's very powerful. Um, yeah. which is great. And it sounds like that was one of your genesis is you felt the feeling of contribution when you were younger mm-hmm. and you liked that addiction. So you suck it, you just seeked it out more and you went for it and it's been growing with you, which is beautiful. Um, is there any last piece of advice you'd like to share or let people know about before you can before you tell everyone how they can get a hold of you and what you do? Yeah, so um, I think my last piece of advice is don't be too intimidated as a young person to do that thing, whatever that thing is for you. So if it's a service project, if it's starting a company or a nonprofit or anything like that, I think I was very intimidated going into this, um, thinking that I was too young and I wasn't an expert and why am I in this space? There are so many other people here. Um, But what I realized is that most people entering a new space like also don't know what they're doing. Um, And as as a child, you think that all the adults around you have everything figured out and they know exactly what they're doing and they know exactly how to make a company. But what I learned is that's like simply not true. Um, and everyone is just sort of figuring out as they go along and they don't all have everything together the way that they seem to have it together. Um, and so don't let that hold you back from from doing what makes you happy and what you're passionate about and how you can make your impact on the world. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Don't let those those fearful limiting beliefs and identity stop you. Be like, I can't because of this because everybody's faking it to some degree, yeah. and, and we don't know. It was just we just grab the steering wheel and say, "It's, it's my turn. Where are we going? All right." And then you're like, "I have no idea where we're going." No. So that's beautiful. Yeah. And I love that you're able to kind of uh, stick with it and get past those negative beliefs and stand the grind to where you start to see yourself over time as like, "Oh, I I actually am." you know, a scientist, I am an author, I am a, you know, insert the thing that you didn't give yourself permission to feel. um, Because, you know, we all have to step into those identities when we're ready or when we're not ready and just got to believe it in order to make it happen. So I love it. I think it's wonderful, Chloe. Well, thank thank you you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Um, This has been a pleasure. I wish you the best on your journey and your company. Uh, You got many miles ahead, but you're you're in a beautiful spot in college you're already building up a company so um, love to learn <laughs> more as, as you progress so thank you so much for your time and have a beautiful day thank you you too all right, take care now. all right bye thank you for listening to the heroes of reality podcast check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes while you're there you can also take the heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.